This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Jason, earnings season kicking off with a big batch of earnings. And I feel like the one headline, and we talked about it a little bit with Mike, J.P. Morgan, Citi, and Wells setting aside almost $28 billion for bad loans in the second quarter. And that's a mark only surpassed by the last three months of 2008 during the depths of the financial crisis. Yeah. And I think that's notable. You know, we are careful about making comparisons from crisis to crisis, but those are the sorts of things that do have an apples to apples comparison to some extent, because ultimately that gives us a window into the underlying economic crisis, which is really important. Let's check in with Anton Schutz, President Chief Investment Officer of Menden Capital Advisors, joining us on the phone. Anton, a very busy day to say the least. What's the most important thing from your perspective? Is it the bad loan provisions? Is it something else that you heard from the big banks? Well, um, so first of all, and, and I hate to do this, but I have to go back to your comment about the, the loan provisions and going back to the crisis. And, you know, the banks had to adopt in the first quarter a brand new accounting treatment called CECL, mm. which is a hor- horrible treatment because it's pro-cyclical, right? It makes the banks reserve a lot more when things become uncertain than they would have under any old accounting standard. So when we first got those big charges in April, everybody goes, oh, my gosh. And here we go again. And they all have to subscribe to a bunch of factors, um, but it's the loss over the life of the loan, which is very different than under the old methodology where you go, look, what kind of losses can I see coming any, anywhere in the near term? I've got to set aside reserves. Now if you make a 10-year loan, you got to go, well, how much money could I lose over the next 10 years on this one loan? And it's a much, much bigger number. So believe it or not, the banks are much better reserved um, than they have been, and their capital ratios are obviously much stronger. So, right. Uh, so it's not a – but I guess the question then, Anton, just to take that a level deeper is the banks definitely – I think it's undeniable that the banks are healthier than they were in the financial crisis. That yeah. I don't think anybody's debating that or should debate that right. uh, candidly. I guess the question is are we overdoing it by saying that there is – a certain level of pain and suffering out there so that what you're arguing is that the number uh, may not be as dire or the or the underlying uh, reality may not be as dire. Sure. It's, it's not apples to apples to prior. Got it. Anything fair. Good. Prior to the first quarter. So that's really important. And quite frankly, I, I, I believe that anywhere in the media, we're the first conversation, even including first quarter earnings people have had about this. So <laughs> I've had my fights with FASB about it. Uh, and the fact that it's pro-cyclical, right, makes a bank less willing to lend money because they've got to set aside more for any brand new loan that comes in the door. Dumb stuff. It's here. We have to deal with it. So, all right. Um, so here's what's really is important is the loss absorbing capacity, the earnings power of this industry. The fact that J.P. Morgan can set aside what it set aside and still report positive earnings. Uh, the fact that Citibank can set aside what it set aside and still report positive earnings. There's an amazing loss-absorbing 
uh, earnings power at these companies. So that's a, that's the good news. Um, and I would say there are pieces of good news out there, right? The, the guys who have the capital markets, I mean, they rocked it. J.P. Morgan, you know, amazing quarter. Citibank, incredibly strong quarter. Wells Fargo doesn't have that business of the same size, so doesn't have that as an offset. Uh, mortgage, incredibly strong quarter out there. And and so far, credit has behaved. Now, it's behaved for a lot of reasons. Right? All these great government programs, um, as well as forbearance. And we've seen it across a number of different things. We've seen it across consumer and credit card and auto. Uh, and we've seen it in, in commercial. And really what that forbearance means is, okay, uh, borrower, we're going to give you some more time. We're going to you know, add the uh, principal interest to the end of the loan period. We'll talk about it when you're ready to start paying. Now, at least on the consumer side, probably about half the consumers have been making payments. So that's the good news. I think that's a very good news. Uh, we've seen a number of people uh, requesting forbearance and mortgage and this is before today. It's just Sandy and Freddie start to drop. Uh, people are saying, hey, no, it's okay. I've got it. I can do this. Um, so, you know, if there are some green shoots out here. What obviously is the shoot that's scaring everybody is, is the reemergence of this, this terrible disease. Well, I think that's what we're trying to figure out, right? You know, Anton, the longer this goes on, I mean, I know for J.P. Morgan, I guess their net charge-offs, if I can get it out, um, which are their overdue loans, the bank doesn't expect to get back. They were up 6% from the first three months of the year. It was less than what was predicted. I guess we're all just trying to, in a world where there's not a, a lot of visibility, kind of figure out what this recovery looks like on the other side. And I just, you know, it just feels like, you know, um, there's been a lot of enthusiasm in the equity markets overall and just trying to get from, glean from these banks whether or not things are going to be okay. I mean, ultimately, long term, they yeah. will be. But <laughs> but I think we're trying to get an idea of what this next 6 to 12 to 18 months look like. Right. And that, that long term phrase is so important. And, and I think, obviously, the banks and the government, and the banks are a great conduit for moving money to, to people who need it. Uh, obviously, forbearance has been important. I, I do think we get more, more programs coming from the government depending on how long this lasts. You know, do we need another round of this PPP? And, and I don't mean, look, there's capacity in the system for first-time users. They haven't used all of it. But what about everybody who has used it? Right. You're a restaurant, you've borrowed it, you've paid your people, they've not got unemployment, and now you're shutting back down again. So I think there's some talk in Washington about a second round of this coming, and mm. I think that's great for the borrower, uh, great for employment, uh, and, and good for the banking system. The banking system is, has actually generated a tremendous amount of fees. The big banks are donating the fees to right. charity. Interesting times, Charlie Pellet. All right. Thank you so much. Let's get back to our conversation about the big banks, the earnings season, of course, underway. Anton Schutz is with us, President and Chief Investment Officer at Menden Capital Advisors, roughly $190 million in assets under management on the phone from Florida. So, Anton, what's this year been like for you? <laughs> well, you know, I'll tell you, uh, the, the, the storm we've seen uh, in the stock prices has been spectacular. And I think, as we talked about earlier, that uncertainty is, is what's really caused it, not, not actual losses. Um, obviously, we've seen the yield curve change dramatically. The Fed's lowered rates a lot, so that's hurt margin. Uh, uncertainty, you know, creates lower loan growth. And then, of course, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, potential losses out there. Um, and unfortunately, nobody knows all those answers. So it's led to 
a bunch of my stocks being a lot cheaper than they were. Um, and, you know, I, I think some of it is deserved, uh, but much of it is not. And I, I think that, that some banks uh, have really done a great job underwriting and will we'll come through this incredibly well. And I don't think we're going to have a lot of failures this round unless things get a lot worse. Mm. And I, I think we've done a great job about, you know, making stuff not a lot worse. I think that the distancing, the face masks, and I know we've got a resurgence, but, um, you know, I, I think people want to get back to work. Businesses want to function. Uh, we're all adapting to work from home. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think the economy's not going back to where it was a couple months ago. Uh, it's question is, is it going to go back to where it was, um, you know, in January or December? And so, Anton, I know uh, we know you look at regional banks very closely as well. What's the read from some of those CEOs as you look at the numbers coming out from them, uh, you know, on a monthly, daily, weekly basis? What's the read you get on the economy and, and their health? Sure. Uh, really good question. Um, obviously, if you're, you're in a spot that's got sort of a, uh, a whammy of, of uh, you know, energy prices as well as what's going on here, you know, a lot more uncertainty in, in some of the places that have energy. Um, and when you start going into the rest of the industry, you start talking about underwriting and, and really, you know, picking apart uh, parts of, of the banking industry that are subject to this, right? You know, if, if it's retail, that means, you know, strip plazas for the smaller banks. If it's restaurants, generally means takeout, not full service. So, you know, I think there's good news there. The strip plazas, do they have supermarkets in them? Do they have a CVS or a Rite Aid or something that, that you know, is going to be an anchor and a good anchor and that credit's going to be okay? If it's a hotel, is it going to be a Marriott Courtyard by the throughway, which people are using? You know, people back in their cars are driving. Uh, or is it a hotel by a convention center uh, where no one's going to be using that anytime soon? And, and those tend to be bigger loans, and, and, and they're at the bigger banks or insurance companies. Uh, but really pressing the banks for underwriting standards and loan-to-values. And, you know, if you've underwritten these things at, you know, 50 or 60% loan-to-value, the bank losing money on this is, is relatively low. It could become non-performing. It could need help. But the bank actually losing money, um, you know, becomes a very low probability event. Uh, you know, and obviously some banks have been more aggressive and written, underwritten at higher standards. As you said, though, before, Anton, you know, some of your investments, you know, have certainly, you know, they're a lot cheaper than they were, <laughs> you know, before this. And I get that. So what have you had to do to kind of manage your portfolio? Have you gotten out of some names because you just can't deal with the exposure at this point? Have you upped your positions in others? I'm just curious if you get into the specifics of some of uh, sure. what you've been selling, what you've been buying. Yeah, and, and I think that that's a really good question. Um, you know, certainly during the depths of the sell-off, you know, I don't know, March 23rd was the bottom or where it was, um, you had a chance to upgrade in some cases. You could you could sell a, a small micro cap in, you know, in an energy state and, and turn around and, you know, buy, uh, you know, Citi or J.P. Morgan or, or Morgan Stanley. Um, and, and I think that in some cases, you know, we've gotten more liquid and we've, we've upgraded to larger names uh, with similar, you know, pricing. We've added names like uh, a Synovus, which is a big regional bank, or First Horizon, um, which is a self-help story. They're in the middle of a big merger and a lot of cost cuts coming there. Um, you know, so you upgrade, you know, the quality, you upgrade mm -hmm. the liquidity. Um, so, you know, those are the kind of moves that we're making. Certainly any of the names that were big positions for me before are still big positions for me today, percentage-wise. 
Um, you know, none of none of them have you know caused me to go, oh my gosh, they've done something bad. You know, management is key to doing well in any one of the, you know in a, in a tough environment as well as a good environment. So you know, underwriting loans the proper way, like I mentioned before, you know, 50% loan to value. Uh, it's going to do a lot better than someone who's lending at 80% loan to value. You know, the risk is very different. And, right. you know, when I interview banks, those are kind of conversations I'm having on these day-to-day, you know, uh, Zoom calls. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, you got to overrun uh, the Zoom conferences. <laughs> you know, it, it's great. You can work from home, but, boy, are you getting offered meeting after meeting after meeting. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's both funny and exhausting. It is. It is. Yeah, it's a different world, a different way of life, that's for sure. Anton Schutz, thank you for spending some time with us. Yeah. Really appreciate it. We know it's a busy day and a busy time, uh, just as you described. President Chief Investment Officer of Menden Capital Advisors joining us on the phone from Florida, Carol. And he echoes so much of what we've heard from so many people, like, you know, what happens with the economy? Do we go back to where we were? He doesn't think where we, you know, we go back to where we were a few months ago, but do we go back to maybe what we saw in January and February when there is some clarity and much more transparency? And that would certainly change the uh, outlook for so many different companies. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, this is one of my favorite stories that is in the upcoming issue of Business Week. It's online and on the Bloomberg Terminal already. And I have to say, Carol, I'm not alone. People are reading this story like crazy. I think it's people of a certain age, and I put myself in that category in their 40s. I love the Ford Bronco. Well, I have to say my brother's rehearsal dinner for his wedding, and we were all glued to the TV set because of OJ and oh. the white Bronco. We were all watching, and I think it became part of our Did not know where that was cultural going. history, you whether you like it or not. Rehearsal dinner. No, 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 for his wedding. It's just, you know, it's kind of, you know, we all remember yes. kind of that chase in the white Bronco. We um, do indeed. And it sounds like the Bronco, the Ford Bronco, is getting uh, a revival. Keith Naughton has this story. He's Bloomberg News auto reporter. He's joining us uh, on the phone from Detroit. Also, with us is Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber on the phone from Massachusetts. Jill, don't you know where you were when that white Bronco was on the TV? Yeah, definitely. And this story, Keith's story, the amazing part is that it actually has relatively little to do with the Bronco, the, that Bronco moment, which <laughs> obviously they Ford don't want to remember with for the last twenty something years, right? And what Keith um, uncovered in this story is that within Ford there was this little group of sort of obsessed diehards who were always bummed that the Bronco had gone away. And so for years, they've actually been quietly toiling um, and basically, you know, fighting upper management for a shot to bring back the Bronco, which lo and behold happened to present itself. Um, And uh, on that note, I'll ask Keith, you know, Keith, as you sort of, uh, did this story. I'm just really curious, like, what what was it about the Bronco that these guys were so obsessed about? They felt it was a true and pure SUV, and that and that the way SUVs were evolving, they were sort of morphing into these kind of, they call them crossovers, a cross between sedans and, and SUVs that are curvy and comfy and not rugged at all. And, and they saw Jeep over there stealing all the... Uh, Thunder with its Jeep Wrangler, that, that true off-road vehicle, and they thought we have this this legendary brand that began in the '60s. Obviously, became infamous in the '90s with OJ, but began in the '60s. And if you go back to that original cool Bronco, they're they're selling for hundreds of thousands uh, as vintage cars. Why aren't we capitalizing on this? And so, why was it such a hard sell to management, Keith? 
Well, for years, you know, they just kept hitting roadblocks. There were, they had one going in the early 2000s, and and the CEO at the time, Jack Nasser, loved it. But then that got killed because Ford got embroiled in that Firestone rollover recall scandal. I don't know if you remember that, but but um, you know, there were congressional investigations and, and. Hundreds of people died, and so Ford was losing billions, and they had to start cutting, and they cut the Bronco. It came back again about a decade later, uh, and again, uh, the recession bore down on them. Gas prices shot up. SUVs fell out of favor, and that program got killed. So they just kept trying, and and they would do this, this group. They called themselves the Bronco Underground, and it's this group of middle managers, and they would do it literally in their spare time. Uh, lunch hours, after work, weekends, they'd be scre- uh, you know, sketching drawings, coming up with business plans. At one point, they convinced a plant that Ford has in South Africa to maybe produce it and ship it back to the United States. So they're begging for factory space. Um, all of these things. And that's actually, got- Keith, that's a great way to say, like, I mean, that the break- what was the actual breakthrough right now that allowed them to bring it back? Yeah, so finally, then in the middle of this decade, um, they they brought back uh, their their Ranger pickup, which is gives the mechanical foundation for what a Bronco can be built on, and uh, you know those those pickups were increasing in popularity. Gas prices plunged, SUVs increased in popularity. Suddenly, they had an opening. They took it. They designed it. They're sharing the same factory as the Ranger pickup here in Detroit, and uh, and it was revealed yesterday, and it's getting an awful lot of attention. Well, does the, do consumers, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Joel. Oh, I just, you know, the the cast of characters around this, I think is also uh, just taking, worth taking a moment to talk about. One of which happens to be Chris Farley's cousin. What role does he play in this? Yeah, so uh, Ford's chief operating officer now is Jim Farley, Chris's cousin. And, um, and Jim used to work for Toyota. And in 1994, he was a junior executive for Toyota living in L.A., and he was driving home from work one day on the 405, and the police near LAX told him he needed to pull over. Everybody needed to pull over because O.J. was coming through in the white Bronco. So Jim Farley, Ford COO, stood by the side of the road, and I witnessed the slow-speed chase as it went by. He said he had no idea really what was going on at the time. It took him to you know, get home and turn on the news to realize exactly what he'd seen. That is just nuts, right? <laughs> like, it's just so great. It's like coming full circle uh, in many right. ways. Well, Dude. Yeah. You, you want to bring it full circle, Carol? Let yeah. me just l- leave you with this little gem, which was, so Ford announces that they're going to bring the Bronco back, and then they have to postpone it again because that announcement was OJ's birthday. <laughs> <laughs> so it got delayed again. They have to push it back a couple extra days. Keith, this yeah. this story just seems to uh, keep on giving. But, you know, I think what That's we're all sort of gravitating toward, though, is this is a really popular car. I mean, this could be a, a breakaway hit in many ways. It could. And, you know, uh, the, the early attention to it suggests that it may. Um, and, and if so, Ford could really use it because they've been struggling through uh, three years of, of declining profits and, and, and losses. Uh, so if they could make this thing a hit, and they're doing it with this kind of retro design, it's you get a two-door, four-door, the smaller version, it's called the Sport. Um, you know, it 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 could sell uh, the 
Bronco itself, the two and four door, could sell seventy five thousand, and the small one could sell another seventy five thousand. The analogs sell this, so that would that would uh, that would be a big hit. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you both so Such much, Keith Naughton, auto reporter for Bloomberg. Big story on the Bronco. It is back. Uh, check it out. It's one of the most read on the Bloomberg and on Bloomberg.com. It'll be in the upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Our thanks as well to Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So last week, Jason and I talked with Bloomberg Businessweek economics editor Peter Coy. He had this great story talking about superstar cities and how they're not cracked up to, or they're not all cracked up with their, let's try that again. Superstar not cities are cracked up to all be? they're cracked up to be. Yeah, there's something in my brain. The synapse is not working. Uh, and this is especially the case, this is troublesome, uh, for black male college graduates. It's all based on a new study that's out from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. We're talking about MIT. So in today's Business Week Economics, we caught up with the author of that MIT study. It's entitled The Faltering Escalator of Urban Opportunity. MIT economist and economics professor David Otter joins us on the phone from Cambridge, Massachusetts, to talk about his findings. Uh, Professor Otter, it's so nice to have you here on Bloomberg Business Week. Tell us about Thank what you, you looked into and, and the biggest findings for you, the takeaways. Sure. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Um, yeah. I'll just mention that I'm also the co-chair of the MIT Work of the Future Task Force that sort of focused on questions about mm-hmm. uh, employment and opportunity going forward. And the uh, main finding of this study is that labor markets in dense cities, um, you know, think New York, Los Angeles, uh, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, um, uh, have seen a real hollowing out of the set of jobs. On the one hand, uh, a growth in professional and technical managerial work. On the other hand, a lot of growth of services, you know, food service, cleaning, security, entertainment, recreation, uh, home health care, transportation, uh, maintenance, and so on. And a kind of hollowing out of middle-skill office clerical, administrative, and also a lot of light production work that used to happen in cities. And this has kind of caused uh, people who were at the middle, people without four-year college degrees, to kind of be pushed downward uh, out of that middle stratum into services uh, that are these hands-on services that are typically uh, less well-paid and have less room for uh, upward mobility. And that's a big change from, uh, let's say, around 1980, when cities actually offered more skilled work to people without college degrees. You would find much more specialized jobs for the less educated. And I, and I mean, include people who even have a two-year college degree, so mm-hmm. you know, moderately educated folks. <laughs> mm. uh, and that, and that, so this, this urban opportunity escalator has kind of uh, flattened out. It's kind of stalled. And this has had a larger effect on minority workers, uh, blacks and Hispanics, than on whites, even though it's true for people, all people with less than a four-year degree, it's even more pronounced as kind of hollowing out of the middle and this relative decline in wages uh, relative to non-urban areas. So go ahead. Well, I, I just wanted to ask you, because it's so interesting to synthesize this, David, with, you know, this this sort of renaissance that we saw, and I'm talking pre-pandemic here, for big cities, you know, sort of people coming back to the cities and, you know, maybe eschewing the suburbs in some ways. Are those connected or are they just adjacent? They are connected and it has been a renaissance for cities, but it's been a renaissance for cities for the highly educated. Right. Uh, if you're doing finance, if you're uh, doing marketing, uh, advertising, insurance, 
you know, certain types of engineering, design, and creative work, even technology work, those things are booming. And people who do that work earn a lot more in cities, uh, even net of the rising cost of housing in those places. But ironically, as that's occurred, the, the middle stratum of jobs has just uh, faded away. And so for those who are not doing that elite work, uh, things are getting uh, less good. The opportunities are less favorable. Wages have not kept up with the rising cost of housing. And things have actually relatively improved outside of urban areas. And this may come as a surprise uh, to your listeners. It's actually some of a surprise to me as well. I kind of discovered this in the course of studying the data. But it turns out people have, you know, rank-and-file individuals have figured this out. If you look at the mobility data, you'll see that highly educated adults are moving to affluent, expensive cities, and those without college degrees are moving away. So people are kind of voting with their feet. They had already discovered that the allure of cities uh, had, uh, had basically faded for people who didn't have do highly paid, highly specialized work. What are the longer-term economic implications of this? Well, I think the, the implications are that, you know, we have moved into a very kind of bimodal economy of uh, where automation and globalization have kind of taken out a large swath in the middle. And, uh, and this, you know, what my work has kind of uncovered, and this, again, is surprising to me as well, is this is really concentrated in urban areas. Urban areas were distinctive in that they had this thick core of middle skill jobs and offices and factories and so on. And so as those have disappeared, they disappeared in cities. That's where they were. Unfortunately, many you know cities are uh, blacks and Hispanics in America are overrepresented in cities, and so it means the labor markets in which they are you know most invested are the ones where opportunities are uh, less and less favorable. What well, it means? Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, but there's a, there's a positive side to the story, uh, which is it's not that everything is getting worse and it's getting worse or in cities, so to speak. Hmm. Uh, outside of dense urban areas. Uh, things have moved the other direction. Workers without college degrees have kind of moved up the occupational ladder and up the wage ladder. So part of the reason that uh, urban areas, dense urban areas, look particularly unattractive is because the less dense, the non-urban areas, look a little better. So I think, you know, in the long run, it suggests that there's going to be probably more opportunity outside of these traditional places. That's where there's growing demand for care work. That's where more of the elderly are located and uh, have, you know, uh, intensive demand for services. And so it suggests that, you know, the con- kind of conventional wisdom of, you know, go to the city, get on the escalator, that's your way up the ladder. Uh, that remains true for the highly specialized workers and for others, uh, the opposite is true. Right. All right. We're going to unfortunately have to leave it there. I have so many more questions. You're going to have to come back uh, at some point. David Otter is professor of economics at MIT, joining us on the phone from Cambridge. Also, importantly, uh, part of an initiative around effectiveness and inequality. This is the core issue of our time, I think, Carol, that has been brought into sharp relief by everything that's gone on, all the debates around social justice and racial inequality, a really, really important topic. Well, you do wonder about the, you know, how this 
increases some of the gaps and and how it creates you know homogenous society perhaps than in cities right which is we've all looked to cities as being so diverse and maybe right. they're not as diverse as we've you know led them to you know or we've been led to believe and they've so. become less so i think yeah. that's what's so fascinating about great. this and you do wonder what role the pandemic has had in accelerating some of these trends or maybe decelerating them We'll see. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, we've been talking a lot about banking. Let's talk about banking and IPOs. Uh, a big debut today for Encino. Pierre Naudet is the chief executive officer of that company, he joins us on the phone from Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, and Pierre, congratulations. It feels like are in order. Uh, your stock is soaring today. Tell us a little bit about what Encino does. Yes, thank you very much. Obviously, a very exciting day for us. I'm so happy for the employees and our early investors. Well, you know, Encino is focused on, it's a cloud-based SaaS platform that enables banks of all sizes um, and credit unions uh, with a more than a $10 billion opportunity for us to digitally transform onboarding, loans, and account opening. Three very simple things, but massive overhead in these banks to do it in a compliant fashion. Uh, and so we focus on those three. We build a single platform on, on a cloud-based platform, and uh, we see tremendous uptake. Right. And so you're working with Santander, TD Bank, uh, a lot of those financial firms that are certainly very familiar uh, to our audience. I got to ask you, though, about the IPO just quickly. Um, you came in at 31. As Jason said, the stock is taking up. You're at 52 and change. Do you feel like the bankers priced this wrong? Because initially, the expected price was like 28 to 29. Um, do you feel like, I mean, it certainly came above that, but do you feel like there was a bunch of money left on the table here? Yeah, you know, today obviously is an interesting experience. Um, my view is that uh, we're satisfied with what we've done. We are focused on the long term for this company. Um, the IPO was an important milestone for us because of our international expansion and our significant investment in R&D. And this was the right time. And um, I'm pleased that from tomorrow morning on, I can go back to focus on my customers and my people and the special culture we've built here to actually drive this transformation in banks. Because as you can imagine, you know, eight years ago, nobody did banking in the cloud. And today, we are the worldwide leader in doing this and helping banks to transform and optimize. Well, what are some of the growth rates that you're seeing, right? Because this is a big pop and you certainly want to hold on to it, right? You don't want to see it kind of whittle away. So talk to us about the growth rates that you're seeing in your business on the top and bottom line. And also talk to us about what you're going to do with this capital raise. Yes. So we um, plan to be a world-class SaaS growth company for the foreseeable future. We do have a plan to be a cash flow break even in about six to eight quarters. We made that very public in the process here. Mm -hmm. um, and so the plan is literally, we've got offices in London, Tokyo, Sydney, Australia, Melbourne, Salt Lake City, Toronto. We are going to accelerate our global expansion. Uh, this platform allows us uh, with over 100 currencies and over 100 uh, languages on the force.com platform. Um, so we really can do what, what small companies couldn't do before, okay? And so that, uh, in addition to the organic innovation drive that we have, to literally not only focus on commercial lending or the commercial side of the bank, we do that, we do small business, we do it for the retail bank. And it's the first time there's a single platform where you get a 360 view of the customers through Salesforce. And then any product you select or any complex loan or the most simplistic personal loan can be processed right from there without re-entering data or asking for any new documentation. 
tremendous efficiency we bring into the banks that actually help them to feel and look much more like a fintech. Right. Being nimble and fast and customer focused. Has that become only more important in the midst of the pandemic, Pierre? I mean, I wonder if the, the business accelerated because banks figured out that they needed to be a little bit more, as you say, nimble and a little bit more tech savvy, both internally and customer facing. You know, that's the magic of this approach. We go into the bank first. Uh, we, we actually improve the bank employee experience, give them mobility. They can work from anywhere, anytime. And then we take that improved processes out to the customers through apps and portals. But phenomenal reaction from banks now, especially you can't commute to New York City, London, etc. And Encino bankers can literally stay home, do anything on their phone. I got a picture the other day from a friend of mine, a bank up in New Jersey, um, Frank Sorrentino of Connect One Bank. Yeah, we know him. flying in a small plane. Mm-hmm. And they actually, and, and Frank and Liz was approving loans in the air on iPhone, on Encino. <laughs> I mean, that is... That's fun stuff, and that's why I love what I'm doing. Are yeah. you, you know, I know you work with banks that have assets from $30 million to $2 trillion. So are you working, you know, on a day when we're hearing from the big banks, whether it's J.P. Morgan, City, Wells Fargo, are you working with all of these big banks as well? We are. But what I'm telling my, my community and regional banks is, guys, for the first time because of the cloud and the pricing models we have, you can now get access to the same sophisticated technology that only big banks could afford in the past. Mm-hmm. So this truly addresses your growth fears, okay? But we actually address the four main pillars that banks look at. It's cost savings, it's efficiency, it's compliance, and then revenue growth. And we can address all four depending on the cycle of that bank. And so size drives those decisions. Right. All right. Well, we're going to uh, let you get back to your victory lap here. Pierre Nade is CEO of Encino. A heck of a debut here on the NASDAQ. The ticker is NCNO and just taking a quick check, uh, that stock about is 168%. up fifty two dollars, uh, mm-hmm. almost doubling, one hundred seventy percent, as you say, Carol. Uh, right now trading at eighty three thirty three. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is a friend of the show, Walter Todd, Chief Investment Officer at Greenwood Capital Associates. He joins us on the phone from Greenwood, South Carolina. Walter, nice to have you here with us. We do want to talk about the markets, but just tell us about life in South Carolina right now. Yeah, uh, well, thanks for having me on. Um, Yeah, yeah, it's getting a little... uh a little uh, stressful down here, I guess. Last time we talked, I think you, New York was the hot spot, and so now South Carolina is. But my my family, everybody's healthy, so I'm very thankful for that. And um, you know, we're we're making it. And so, from an investor's perspective, and I'm glad to hear everybody's safe and well, Walter. From an investor's perspective, how much pause does this give you as you look across the country and not to take anything away from your home state or my home state of Georgia, uh, your home state of South Carolina and the rest of the Sun Belt down there? 
but it felt like the market yesterday saw those headlines about California and California being the fifth largest economy in the world and said, oh, wait, hold on a second. Maybe this isn't uh, so good. Maybe we need to be a little more worried. How do you view it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Jason, when when you when you look, you kind of looked at the headline and you thought that, but then when you kind of looked at the sector performance yesterday, it was actually a lot of the reopening areas like financials and industrials that did the best huh. yesterday. They were actually up. And then, you know, obviously technology took a big hit. Um, so it was, yesterday was very curious. I mean, recognizing the headline reversal in, in the indices, but underneath the surface, it really had kind of a more a positive tone as it relates to the virus. And, you know, you're seeing that again uh, today with energy and materials and industrials really kind of, you know, lifting the market up and, and some of the areas that have done better under the you know, worst virus news doing doing worse. Yeah. You know, it's interesting if you watch the market, um, we definitely do see, like we saw yesterday, the market being taken down by a virus head. And I do know that we're kind of transitioning into earnings, certainly because of the bank earnings and the rest of the season to come. I mean, Walter, what are your expectations about what we're going to hear from corporate America uh, about, you know, looking backward, looking forward about where we go? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Jamie Dimon's call this morning um, was very kind of sobering. Uh, he, you know, he's always very honest and open on the, on his calls. And he, he talked about the fact that it's very difficult to look out and, and predict the future. Um, and so I think that's kind of what you're going to hear from, uh, from management teams. But the issue is, or the, you know, the potential positive glass half full scenario is that, you know, analysts have modeled down pretty significant downturn in earnings down about 40% overall for the market. And when you see companies come in, for example, JPM down 50% versus the model down 60%, that's a win, you know, <laughs> for the company on a relative expectation basis. So I think I think there is the possibility that that you could see companies as they report do some better than expected numbers, uh, but it's not going to be uniform. I mean, take you know, Wells Fargo is the other side of that coin today, uh, Citigroup as well. Um, so you're not, it's not going to be you know uniform across the board. But in general, I think we could maybe have a better than a very low expectations for those cyclical parts of the market. Now, the technology side that's run, that's another story. Uh, expectations are obviously very high on that front, so that could be a different, a different outcome. Yeah, and so. When you think about uh, how you model a portfolio in in all of this, Walter, given what you said about financials, given what you said about technology, are there areas that look, you know, maybe a, a little bit more ripe than others? I mean, I think about the travel stocks; they've been beaten up. I think about you know a lot of the the areas, the sort of consumer facing areas that folks are uncertain about. Where, where do you look here? Yeah, I mean, it's 2020 has has been quite a year uh, for portfolio management. I think what you have to do, or what we we believe you you should do, is is, is take kind of a barbell approach to this, and and you're going to have some exposure to those areas that you know are secular growers like technology and healthcare. But at the same time, despite what it feels like right now with the virus picking up, I think you do want to have some exposure to the cyclical areas as well, whether that be industrials, some, some financials, energy, et cetera. So I think you want to take, you know, play both sides of that. Right. At this point, we're avoiding kind of the really deep, like the travel and leisure areas, because I think that's going to take you know, longer to recover. 
but we think having uh, exposure to both areas uh, is important in a portfolio. I mean, I guess what's interesting about tech and healthcare specifically, Walter, is that, you know, they can stand to benefit to some extent from this and have, uh, in certain cases, pretty dramatically. And, you know, I even think about this this name that went public today uh, or priced last night and was on the market today in Sino, this little yeah. uh, software company. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe the CEO, at least, is, is based right up the road from you in, in Wilmington. And that's where he called us from, uh, at least. Maybe he's just got a nice beach house. But, um, you know, this is an area where technology has really, as you say, uh, outperformed in part just because of the way we're living. Sure. Yeah. And, and there's definitely fundamental basis or tailwinds for healthcare and tech. Um, it's just a question of what do you pay for that? Yeah. And in some cases, you know, you're paying 25, 30, 40 times revenues uh, for some of these companies. And we just we just think that's a little little too much. But there's opportunities, you know, in healthcare, for example, I'll give you, you know, J&J, which we own. That's kind of a value stock within healthcare, yeah. you know, trading around 15 or 16 times that reports in a couple of days. So, you know, there there's opportunities throughout the market. We just think you need to be careful. You know, yesterday was kind of a warning shot to say, hey, at some point, valuation does matter. Uh, again, uh, hasn't for a while, but you know, it kind of peaks its head up every now and then. Hey, just quickly, Walter, have you been buying, selling in this environment? I'm just curious, because you know, it's interesting you said about the the tourist, you know, kind of stocks that you've got to be patient longer. But those are the kind of names that, if you are patient, you could get a big payoff longer term. So I'm just curious. Got about 30 seconds here, buying yeah. or selling that you've been doing. Yeah. Now, our turnover has been in our large cap portfolio, our kind of main portfolio has been been fairly low. We haven't been doing doing a lot of shifting, but we've been keeping names in check. So we we own we have exposure to Amazon and Apple and those names, but we've been keeping them kind of in check as they've continued to run. So we don't get outsized you know exposure to those when they do kind of come in like they did yesterday, for example. All right. We're going to leave it there. Walter Todd, always good to catch up with you. Glad to hear all is as well as can be expected down there in South Carolina. Walter Todd, Chief Investment Officer for Greenwood Capital Associates on the phone from Greenwood in the great state of South Carolina, Palmetto State. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.